Good morning. I'm Pastor Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Thornhill Baptist Church. So glad that you're able to join us this morning, and hopefully uh, today and this weekend we'll continue to be able to engage in what God's Word has for us uh, today. This morning we are continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, and we will be wrapping up Ephesians chapter 4 today, as well as receiving communion. Admittedly, as I was preparing this sermon, I felt like this passage has some very specific application to everything that we are witnessing around the world today, where Paul is addressing uh, comparable racial and cultural tensions that we see almost on an hourly basis, where the era changes, but the hearts of men still seem to be fairly consistent, where we see and experience this relational brokenness in our world all over the place. We see it in Ephesus, and we see it today. If you've ever participated in a three-legged race at a picnic somewhere, you know that the trick to success is having a partner who is in unison with you, where you're counting each step together. One, two, one, two, one, two. And if you aren't purposeful and intentional with every single step, it doesn't take much to get out of line. And the only way to get back on track is just to say, let's stop for a minute. Let's regather ourselves and get on the same page together. That's the context that we are entering into as we read Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. This is what he writes. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having been callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind." And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each, of, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that, he, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. One of the channels on TV that my wife and I enjoy watching from time to time is the Home and Garden channel. And we enjoy watching it for just to, to get an idea of all the different ideas and creativity that people have and to gain inspiration for our house. And so I was curious this week just how many home renovation shows are out there on that particular channel. Over 50 shows where they had different focuses, they had different ideas, different concepts. Some were building houses from brand new. Some were just flipping houses. Others were just, just remodeling them. 
Now the general idea for most of these shows is to take a property and renovate them into something that usually fits within their budget and satisfies the criteria of the homeowner. Of course, there is a catch. You only need six figures to be on the show to qualify, and, and then you too could have your dream house. Usually, though, along the way, they discover some sort of hiccup or some sort of moment where they, have it, they face with an unexpected challenge. You have asbestos in the ceiling. Your electrical work isn't up to code. The floorboards are rotten. And there's usually some sort of plot twist that makes the homeowners question if, in fact, the ends justify the means. Paul, though, in this passage, is, is talking about something similar. Now, he's not talking about people's houses, but he is talking about the renovations in people's lives. You see, the renovation realities, both on TV and in our own lives, is that it's not easy work, but it is rewarding. And it's sometimes painful and challenging, but the ends do justify the means. That the finished product is worth the pain and difficulty it takes to get there. Now, renovators usually do a walkthrough of the house with the homeowner and, and offer their assessment of the house. They begin to offer insight into potential problems and obstacles. But as they do that, they begin to offer, they begin to listen to what the homeowner wants as well. The homeowner presents their wish list and the renovators, do, the renovators of these shows do their best to, to try to make it happen given the parameters that they're trying to work within. You know, blow out a wall here and build an island in the kitchen there and replace the flooring there and the lighting up in the ceiling. Paul, though, in this passage, isn't actually much different. And he says, okay, I've, I've looked around. I've heard the stories. We've talked to the tradespeople. We've consulted the city. And here's my assessment on how to move forward. How do we renovate your church? He says, verse 25, don't lie. Verse 26, don't sin in your anger. Verse 28, don't steal. Verse 29, don't speak unwholesome words. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, don't be bitter, wrathful, angry, clamor, slander, malicious. Now, admittedly, it probably doesn't take a psychologist or a theologian or even a general contractor to recognize that all the things that Paul has just listed off here seem pretty obvious, don't they? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't talk badly to others. Those seem pretty obvious to us in terms of how to have a healthy, good relationship. Most of these qualities, though, that Paul is identifying are just a larger larger problem going are symptoms of a larger problem going on underneath the surface and we don't have to look very far to see that these problems like anger lying stealing grieving the heart of God seem to be pervasive throughout our world and they all contribute to relational tension that exists within and around us the reality for all of us though is that at one point or another that we have done at least one of these things and the Ephesians were no different. In fact, the depth of hatred that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles would have been front and center within the church. And the root of the issue for them was that they just genuinely didn't like each other. So what do you do when you're faced with a situation when you, where you just genuinely don't like someone? Where you're stuck in a three-legged race with someone that you can't stand? What do you do when you are faced with a situation where a person doesn't know they have harmed you or even seems to care? 
Where you're, you're in a three, you're trying to run the race and they've just, they don't care that they're in a race at all. What do you do when you're faced with a situation where the person just doesn't want to change? And they're running the race in a completely different direction than you're trying to go. Well, the human reaction for most of us is to get angry, to get resentful, to get frustrated, to get annoyed, to get irritated. Insert whatever adjective you'd like to describe yourself. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's just varying degrees of anger. And for most of us, anger is born out of three or four different scenarios. First one I'd like to propose is control. We all like to be in charge, don't we? Maybe not necessarily of others, but certainly there's one person that we want to be in charge of, ourselves. Generally, we like to be the one who is in charge of our own situations and circumstances. And when we aren't, it can be difficult to know how do we process that? Especially if we're at the mercy of someone else's decisions and, and, and they're running the three-legged race, but this time they're dragging us. Maybe we're at work and things aren't going the way that we think that should. Maybe that driver cuts us off on the highway. And we all have these, these scenarios, these moments where something doesn't meet our expectations. And the only way we feel like we can address it is just to get mad. What we think we're doing then is expressing our displeasure for what's happening around us. More accurately though, what we're doing is expressing our feelings of not being in control. Generally, when we aren't in control, most of us do struggle. Because we have a certain expectation of how, of how work should go, how my kids should behave, how I think your kids should behave, how the employees at the grocery store and restaurants should attend to my needs, how the church should operate, how our neighbors should act. And we are all guilty of this. We, we all like to be in control in one form or another. Second is hurt. The Ephesians and the Gentiles, as Paul writes this, have a long history of woundedness at the hands of each other. And as a result, they were angry, resentful, bitter towards each other. You know, today, we are seeing the consequences of years of hurt and woundedness unfold before our eyes. Where rioting is happening because of, of all this injustice that has, been, that has taken place. See, when most people are hurt by someone, our immediate reaction is to perceive a threat. And as a result, we, re we react in a way to let people know that what just happened is not okay. Unfortunately for someone who has been hurt, though, is we want them to hurt as much as we do, or more. And so our anger becomes this tool that we use to intimidate and show that we have more power over them than they do over us. And the third is fear. I think fear may be a hybrid of control, or control and hurt. The fear comes when we think someone won't know how they have hurt us or how our, how our expectations have not been met. And we use anger as a tactic to express that a certain behavior is unacceptable. Often when we use anger, then it becomes about finding an immediate solution because maybe the long-term solution is just too difficult and we want to see changes right away, and so we're just going to drag that person in our three-legged race. And, and so instead of, instead, of, instead of having the conversation, instead of stopping and getting on, back on our, on our feet together, we just yell at them. And we don't, because we don't want to invest the time and energy it takes to bring about the change in perspective, change in situation. 
And so we use anger as this behavior modification tool where it might change someone's actions, but unfortunately the underlying heart issue remains unaddressed. Let me say this again. That often when we use anger, it becomes about finding an immediate solution because maybe the long-term solution is just too difficult and we want to see changes right now. So anger becomes this tool we use to, to change someone's behavior instead of really investing time and energy to bring about the change in perspective, to bring about a change in heart. And so we use anger as this behavior modification tool where it may change someone's actions. They may stop doing whatever it is that you're telling them to stop doing. But the underlying heart issue still remains unaddressed. For the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul has spent the last three chapters talking about the real reason to choose love and grace towards each other. If he were just to start this, 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 the book in, in this way and say, stop being angry with each other. Don't sin with your, in, your, in your anger. If it were me in that moment, I would imagine that my response would be, no. Do you know what those guys have done to me? Do you know what those guys have done to my people? I have every right to be angry at them. Don't tell me to not sin in my anger. I'm totally justified. And often we use anger because we don't want to deal with the reality of the problem lying underneath the surface. And it's often easier to become angry or hostile or combative than having the difficult conversation. I think what we see from Paul here is that he is actually trying to validate the hurt and control and fear that both the Jews and Gentiles have and the anger that they have directed at each other. But instead, I think he says, you know, I know that you have been hurt by each other. And I know that all of us want control. And I know that we all want to change now. But I need to tell you about Jesus first. So that when we do deal with all of this relational tension here in the church, that, it, that eventually we're going to want to renovate these relationships. That we need to get to the root of the problem to G, in Jesus collectively. We need to do this together. It can't be us and them. It's all of us together. Paul's recommendation then in the midst of anger, isn't to deny it or to shame people. Instead, Paul's recommendation is this. Get rid of it as soon as you can. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Purge that from your system as quickly as you can. Because if you don't, Paul says, you're going to give the devil an opportunity. Even if it's resentment or frustration or irritation or annoyance, even if it's not rage or rioting or expressive anger, just get rid of it. Paul tells us that, that there are very few places that the devil can get a hold of our lives as quickly as unresolved hurt, fear, and un unmet expectations. If we let our anger to bit and dwell inside of us, Paul warns us in verse 31 that it will lead to bitterness. It will lead to wrath. It will lead to more anger, to clamor, to slander, and to malice. These are just different symptoms of the same issue, a hardened hurt. See, when we have unresolved hurt, fear, and unmet expectations, eventually they can create a hardness towards others that Paul uses to describe the Gentiles in verse 18 if we hold on to, as we hold on to our anger. That hardness only makes relational renovations even more 
difficult to accomplish. It's like doing renovations, but this time your hands are tied behind your back. It becomes impossible to accomplish it. Next, Paul says in verse 28, he says, stop stealing. Unfortunately, it wasn't uncommon for Gentiles to be associated with theft in Ephesus. Where the Gentiles would often go into the markets and steal, or they'd go into the public bathhouses, which would have been like nightclubs in Ephesus. Typically, people would have gathered and those attending would have put their clothing and possessions and left them unattended. It would be kind of like going to a swimming pool and putting all your stuff into a locker but not locking the, the door. And, and so all of these possessions were unattended and people would go in and, and pillage whatever was there. Now most commentators think that what Paul is addressing here isn't necessarily a behavior that's happening now within the church, but it was something that's ha- that has happened previously or that there was a reputation for the, for the Gentiles to do this. And because of that, there's, there's this mistrust that, that, that is being perceived towards the Gentiles. That there's this perception of them that they're just thieves. Ultimately, ste- stealing and lying, which Paul addresses a little bit earlier as well, really become issues of trust. Where Paul understands that if trust is going to be built amongst the people of, uh, in Ephesus, if they're going to walk together in step with each other in this race, that they needed to trust each other and that the Gentiles actually need to begin to take the hard work of rebuilding their reputation. And the broken trust that Paul is addressing here is this overarching theme of relational health and unity. See, if you can't trust each other, you can't walk together. Lastly, as Paul continues his assessment of the necessary changes their relational renovation required, He says, don't let any unwholesome words come from your mouth. Now, Paul isn't just speaking, isn't just limiting limiting this conversation to profanity. Jesus, I think instead let's look to Jesus and we can see in Matthew 15 verse 18 where Jesus says, but the things that come out out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. Instead, we need to realize that, that what comes out of our mouths is a symptom of something larger happening. Jesus here in this passage is making the point that the heart behind our words is so important because our words have power. They are, our, they are a reflection of our heart. They become a reflection of what's inside of us. If we have sin and darkness and hardness, eventually it will come through our mouths. If we have love and kindness and grace, that also will come through our mouths. And it may be the words we say, but it also may be the tone in which we say it. Gary Smalley wrote a book a few few years ago now called The Five Love Languages. And he talks about how how some people are, are impacted by our words more than others. I am definitely one of those people whose words can build me up or cut me down really, really quickly. But I've also learned that not everyone has the same love language. But I do defer back to what Jesus has just said. And and I do want to call us to a realization that, that what we say and how we say it is a reflection of what's happening under the surface. What's happening in our hearts. What we say has power. Scripture tells us that our words have the power to build people up or tear people down. 
the Ephesians seem to be using their words to tear each other down. Paul says, though, how, how about we try to edify each other instead? How about we just build each other up? Now, it wouldn't be much of a renovation project, would it, if all Paul said was, okay, we just, we just need to get rid of all of this stuff. That would be like a contractor looking at our house and saying, all we need to do is just remove this wall, pull the cabinets out of the kitchen, pull the, pull the countertop off, and then just leave the job site as it is. It doesn't make sense because the assumption with any renovation is that after you demolish it, you replace it. That after you demolish, you replace it. Unless something changes within the Ephesian church, they will continue to be out of sync with one another. And so Paul gives him this demolition list, and he says, instead of doing these things, let's replace them with something else instead. Instead of anger, let's make peace. Let's forgive. Instead of lies, let's speak truth and be tender-hearted towards each other. Instead of stealing, let's work and share what we have. Instead of unwholesome words, let's edify and, and show kindness. Let's clean out the stuff that's going to wound and harm and disrupt our relationships. And let's bring in the stuff that, that we can replace that, those things that are actually going to build up the relationship instead. So that, that, so that when we do start to walk again in this three-legged race, that we can walk in unison with each other. That we're not moving in different directions. That we don't have this anchor behind us. Paul writes in verse 22 to 24, he says, Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We begin to do the hard work of rebuilding and renewing us. What we discover is that in order for relational renovations to work, the first place we start is in our own lives. Because the truth is, is that demolition is the easy part. It's the rebuilding process that requires more effort. It's easy to say, I'm going to cut that out of my life. The hard part is, what am I going to put back in? And as much as we so desperately just want to look at everyone else and blame them for the problems around us, we need to start with ourselves first. And the word we often use to describe this process of rebuilding and renewing is a really uh, bible word. Uh, it's the word sanctification. It's recognizing that, that God is constantly furnishing us and building us and renewing us. After all that junk has been cleared out, God begins to bring in some, some new stuff. He begins to refill us with different and better stuff so that we can live out a fulfilled life. So I want to offer four ways that I think will help us to make space for Jesus to renew us. That will allow that reno relational renovation to occur. That we can replace all the junk from the old way of life and help us to put on that new self. One, starve it. The first thing that we can do is make sure that the old way of life stays out is to not bring it back in. It, would, it doesn't make sense for someone to, to do a kitchen renovation, pull out all the cabinets, and then just say, oh, let's put them back in. Like most sin in our lives, the more we feed it, the larger it grows. Paul warns us in verse 18 that the more we feed our sin, the harder our hearts become. If we think of sin like a fire, we know that a fire will only grow the more that it's fed. And the more it's fed, eventually before too long it becomes a wildfire. 
And so we starve sin like we starve a fire. Take away the fuel and it makes it harder for it to sustain. Paul tells us in verse 24 to put on the new self. New self. It's like, it's, it would be like taking off an, an old shirt after a day of gardening or changing the oil. It's smelly. It's gross. Why would you want to continue to wear that? Just get rid of that. Put on something new and clean, fresh. Put on a new self. Starve it. The second is be patient. If you've ever done a renovation project, you know that it takes longer than anticipated. Just ask my wife. Unlike the professionals, they can give a timeline fairly accurately. But when it comes to changing ourselves, it isn't always an immediate change. It takes a long time for that to change. Whether it's been values and behaviors that we've been taught or something that we have picked up along the way, sometimes certain behaviors actually become patterns of behavior that we need to intentionally stop doing and redirect ourselves onto something else that helps point us towards Jesus. Sometimes we need to be patient with ourselves and recognize that renovation projects take time. Because the truth is is that the renovation God starts in you and I is it never really stops. And so we starve it. We, We are patient with each other. We're patient with ourselves. Third is let it go. One of the biggest obstacles to relational renovations is our need to be in control. Sin at its root is a control issue where we want to be the ones in charge and do what we want and what we think is right. And the challenge for all of us is that Paul reminds us that renovations aren't complete until we completely surrender ourselves over to Jesus and allow Him to to be the one to fill us rather than us trying to do it ourselves. This isn't a DIY project, a do-it-yourself project. This is a leave-it-to-Jesus project. This isn't a DIY project. This is a a leave-it-to-Jesus renovation. We just need to get out of the way and allow Jesus to do the work that He needs to do. Sometimes we just need to step out of the way so He can begin to fill us up. That also might mean then that, that things are going to look different than we expected. That, that how Jesus gets us to the end, end product is going to may look, maybe look different than what I anticipated. That although we may have similar expectations for the outcome of our lives, Jesus has a much better idea of what's best for us and how we're going to get there. And so we need to let that expectation go and trust that Jesus does know what he's doing in our lives. And lastly, don't renovate alone. It's often said, if you want the job done fast, do it alone. If you want the job done right, do it with others. And it's important and necessary that we invite people to speak into our lives who can encourage us, who can point out the gaps or blind spots in our lives. People can keep us on track so that the renovations in our lives don't drag out or we don't avoid certain things because it's just too uncomfortable to deal with. But instead, us surround ourselves with people that will help us accomplish the task we need to perform. Because once the renovation has started in us, the, re- the relationships in our lives are going to start to change as well. So starve it, be patient, let go, and don't renovate alone. As we receive communion today, I want to offer these final thoughts. I started this message talking about a three-legged race. And we reflected on what we do to be in unison with each other. 
We are intentionally moving in the same direction. One, two, one, two, one, two. But sometimes what happens, it becomes one, two, one, two, one, 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 two, one, two, two, two. And the rhythm becomes just a, a mess. Ephesians 4 is intended to help provide a context of healthy relationships amongst the Ephesians so that it makes getting back together an easier and less painful process when we do begin to get out of line. For us, communion isn't much different. It's our way of assessing ourselves and our heart and identifying how we can get back in step with God. For some of us, it might mean addressing unresolved tension in a relationship. For others, it might mean addressing and confessing sin and asking God for forgiveness. But communion reminds us that Jesus sets the cadence to which we walk. One, two, one, two. And we receive communion to help turn our eyes on Jesus. Where we align ourselves with Jesus and allow Him to walk in us first. And out of that, everything else comes. As we receive communion today, this is like our stop and reflect moment. Just like a three-legged race. We stop and, and check our own pace and invite Jesus to do the renovations that he needs to do so that when we move forward, that we are walking in his rhythm rather than our own. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this bread is my body given for me. Take and eat. Afterwards, Jesus took the wine and said, this wine is a new covenant in my blood. Drink, remembering me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for you, for the ways that you continue to, to draw us back to you. And as we worship you, as we align our hearts with you, as we desire to walk in step with you, would you shape our hearts? Would you shape our lives so that we could reflect you, God? God, we desire to be people who speak truth and kindness, people who are tender-hearted. We desire to be people who, who are generous, who work hard. That all the things that you call the Ephesian church into, that you would begin to, to help us to inspect our own hearts so that you could do the renovation that needs to happen in ourselves. Lord, you know what needs to change in me. You know what needs to change in each of us. Help us to be more like you, Jesus. God, we invite you to, to continue to, to transform us, continue to transform our lives and the relationships around us. But Lord, we, we humbly acknowledge that it starts with, with me first. Would you give me the courage to be able to walk in that and allow you to renovate the things that need to be renovated? I pray this in your name. Amen.